it, uh, is it warm enough for you out there today, huh? You guys enjoying the heat a little bit? How many, how many of you guys have access to a swimming pool? Any of you guys? Yeah. Well, can we get your address, please? Seriously, I was telling Heidi the other night, I was like, I don't know, like, people in the church that have a pool, you know? We just, we want to just go hang in a pool somewhere. So, Sarah and the rest of you guys, if you guys can hook us up afterwards, that would be amazing. It's great to be here together tonight. There's nights when um, I get overwhelmed by the sovereign plan of God that would allow us to be here in this particular moment, at this particular time. Several months ago, after the long journey in Luke, which many of you were a part of, the elders were sitting in a room discussing about which book or letter or epistle or whatever you want to call it would be next. We threw out many options. Your best life now was on the top of the list. And completely a joke. And then we, uh, then we threw out some actual uh, biblical books out there and we were wrestling through what to, what to go through, what to learn together. Several options were listed. We prayed and we came back and uh, we felt like that God had said that we were supposed to be in First John. And it's a night like tonight, right here, right now, June 24th of 2009, that I'm 100% confident that God desired us to be studying 1 John. I don't know if you're aware of the season that we're in as a church. Uh, we're a church named Matthias's Lot. Welcome. And God has laid it upon our heart and individuals within our church's heart to plant other churches. In fact, right now we're a part of something rare and special. We have the opportunity to plant two churches simultaneously. Piney Ridge in Wentzville and August Gate in Soulard in the city of St. Louis. What an amazing opportunity, right? When I look at 1 John, and one of the main reasons that he wrote to these churches in Asia Minor, he's writing this, pleading with them to flee from the false teaching that they may remain united. And I look at this opportunity as a church to be a part of many church plants. And I begin to think about our sinful flesh and how the plans of an enemy would be to come in in this moment and to create a heart of disunity here. And so we have the chance tonight to study a, a passage in the Scripture that is all about the unity of the church. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you something right now. I'm not saying that Matthias's lot is not unified. But what I'm saying is, we must take an offensive approach to remain in biblical Christian unity with one another so that we can glorify God through the planting of these churches. And so I want you to hear our heart at this particular church is not to create distances between ourselves as we plant these churches, but to remain so united because as Jason was already communicating, the church is not held by brick and mortar. And so I say all these things to you tonight to say this passage that we're getting ready to study is going to prompt us and compel us, I hope through the power of the Spirit, to remain in unity. Are you guys ready to roll tonight? Open your Bibles to 1 John 
chapter 4. If you're just joining us again, I, we've been studying verse by verse through uh, the epistle of 1 John. And I want to end, I want to start today where Jason ended last week in verse 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of your gourd, so grab it. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 24 is where we'll start. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this, look at this, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. No, no, no. Uh, he's been teaching about love for a while, right? And encouraging the love of the brotherhood in this church in Asia Minor. And now he uses verse 24 like he often does to shift gears and to begin to talk about the spiritual realm again. He says, by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. What I love about the end of that verse, and just a reminder before we do anything tonight, Scripture says, that for those people who begin relationship with Jesus, that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, the end of this passage says, what? Is given to us by God. I love the fact that not just through the gospel of grace, but through even the rhetoric of the Holy Spirit, we learn that it's not by anything or any righteous deed that we ever do that God implants in us the protection of the Spirit. Isn't that great, my friends? Isn't that a tremendous promise? for us to join under as we look at chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 1 on the screen, please. Uh, So at first glance, you're like, uh, this is muy interesante, right? That was the bilingual portion of the evening tonight, right? Like, what, what's, what's happening here, John? You, you, you're going, you're going, it's, it's love. And all of a sudden you throw in this little, like, test the spirits, uh, right? So, so for many of you, you, you hear the word spirit and you instantly just get excited, right? Your heart starts beating fast. It's just like, dude, what, what does the scripture have to say about the spirit? Now look, I was watching uh, a little television show on uh, Channel 5 at a 4 p.m. Um, I won't say the name of the show, but it begins with an O and ends with an H. Oh, yeah, right? And um, we can have to go. Maybe some of you saw this, because I know some of you ladies uh, TiVo uh, this particular show. And um, the show was called Spirituality 101, um, put on by Oprah. Oh, wait, I said, I, sorry about that. I said I wouldn't say her name. And uh, so I, I get, I sit down and I begin watching this, because I see the, the title Spirituality 101. After about 15 minutes, I had thrown up in my mouth four times, right? <laughs> And I know, never, right? I mean, this, our culture struggles desperately at how to communicate things that are in the spiritual realm. The problem is, is I see that same issue in the church. Do we, as the church, know how to biblically communicate the things that are happening even within us that are caused and stirred by the Holy Spirit? I don't think we do. And I think what tonight's teaching through three verses is going to do is help us understand biblical perspective on the spiritual realm. 
Now, there's many questions I have from verse 1. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Look at it. So beautiful up there on the screen. My first question is, why this verse now? What's happening in Asia Minor that would cause John to write, don't, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits? Why right now? Here, here, here's kind of what I think is happening. Um, picture this. There's a group of people, and uh, they're all standing around a circle, and they're discussing something. Jamie, give me something at random. Perfect. The El Nino. They're discussing the El Nino, right? Which is Spanish for the Nino, okay? Just in case you were wondering. And, and, they're, and they're, discussing, they're discussing the El Nino, you know, what they, what they believe about it. And all of a sudden, a person raises their hand. Um, hey, uh, guys, I don't believe in the El Nino. In fact, I think that's a complete, like, what I believe in is the La Nina, right? Right? And so, and so this person, like, comes in, and, and maybe there's some fun bantering that goes on after that. I don't think that's what's happening here. What's happening in John's day and age is people are talking about the El Nino, again, just for, you know, clearly they're not in that day and age. But they're talking about the El Nino, and someone raises their hand amidst the conversation and says, hey, guys, um, God has told me that the El Nino is not real, and by all the meteorological spiritual guidance, I believe fully because of who God is in the La Nina. Can we agree that when you throw the God card in, it completely changes the conversation? Uh, we've become very good at this in the Christian world because it's almost inarguable, isn't it? Anytime anyone goes like, bling, you know, and they throw out the God card in the conversation, for good or for bad, for true or for error, it becomes inarguable. If someone says, hey, hey, God uh, has called me to do this. It's so difficult in that moment to say, well, I, I don't know, like, what you're talking about. Like, are you sure about that? It's so difficult when someone throws that in. What's happening, listen to this, in this area of the world... It's Gnosticism, we've talked about this over and over and over, has come in after John and some of the other apostles have preached the gospel. John keeps saying, remember what you have heard from the beginning. So they came in and they preached, and then all of a sudden this sect or groups of people or individuals began not just teaching this idea of Gnosticism, but listen, they began saying that what they were hearing and what they were sharing was from God. It's completely different for a Gnostic to get in the conversation and say, well, you guys are, whatever, I don't believe in that. I don't believe Jesus came in the flesh as God. No, what they were saying was, God told me that Jesus didn't come in the flesh as God. They were acting as a prophet. John calls them false. Let's pause and talk about that concept. What's a prophet, right? We use a lot of terms in the Christian church, and we really don't even know what they are. Well, in the Old Testament, pre-Holy Spirit's indwelling in individuals, for the most part, right? We see some uh, certain examples where the Spirit comes and indwells in people. But in, in this particular moment, what happens, right, is that, is that John is trying to show how Gnosticism is grabbing a hold of this, of this false prophetizing. Noah, word? Okay, yeah, yeah. So a prophet in the Old Testament 
is someone who acts as a mouthpiece for God. In other words, God speaks to the prophet, and then the prophet speaks to the people. That's the whole idea of a prophet. A priest, different, uh, differently, and not really for our context, but a priest is someone who acts as the mouthpiece for the people to God. Are you guys with me? You see the difference? So what makes a prophet false? Well, in the Old Testament times, we see tons of false prophecy because if there's individuals that are claiming to be the mouthpiece of God, and in fact are, there's many biblical mouthpieces for God used, it instantly creates this separatist organization, if you will, that are false because they are going against the Scriptures. So what's happened here is these Gnostics are claiming to be mouthpieces for God, but are completely in error. And so at this particular time, in this particular place of the world, John shows us the depth of the problem. If it, was, if it wasn't clear enough when he called people children of the devil, right? Uh, some of you guys who have been journeying with us, you, you remember that teaching. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan, right? That was pretty intense. But, but, but now he says that there's individuals within you that are trying to break apart the unity of the church by bringing in false teaching. Let, let, let me share this. The gospel is so utterly unifying in two ways. It unifies us with the Father who we were separated from because of our sin nature. Because of the blood of Christ, we can be united again with the Father. We get the opportunity to know Yahweh. And the second reason why the gospel is unifying is because it implants the seal, the Holy Spirit, in the people that are in the church, and it unifies us as brothers and sisters. The very nature of the gospel is that it unifies us with the Father and us with each other. And so anything that would try to break apart that unity, my friends, is not of God. Are you with me? Now, one of the biggest questions from verse 1 is what does it mean to test a spirit? Anyone? Right? I mean, pretty important question here, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about it before. Let's start with the word test. When I was growing up in school, at least when I was in school, how many of you guys have been in school? Yeah. Um, but one of, the, one of the concepts that they teach you early on in school is 1-800-THE-TEACHER-DOES-THE-TESTING. You know what I'm saying? Like, the teacher gives the test, and the students take the test. Is that the school you went to, right? If not, you should probably, like, right? They're, they're you know, whatever. Like, their Iowa test of basic skills are probably ridiculous, right? But when I went to school, the teacher gives the test, and the student takes the test. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. You see what he's saying? You have the ability to test spirits. You are in the form, in my earlier analogy, of a teacher. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit with inside of you. The very Spirit of God. You, guided by the Holy Spirit, have the ability to test spirits. You see, it's one thing to just say test the spirits and be like, man, this is kind of complicated. It's another thing to remind you of the great Holy Spirit that's within inside of you, right? So what does it mean for us to test the spirits? Well, I want to start in John's day and age. The testing of spirits generally 
happens in three different processes, if you will. The first process is someone in John's day would come, for instance, a Gnostic, and they would begin speaking things that had the authority or at least the semblance of authority of God. Well, the first process in John's day to test the Spirit is to recall the Scripture or the words of God that those individuals have heard. Now, in John's day, most have heard at least the teachings of John. Are you with me? And some of them did have access to certain pieces of the Old Testament. It's probable, Jason and I were talking about this earlier, it's probable that they would have read a letter to the Ephesians because Ephesus was in Asia Minor. So they have had some access. So the first process is you're recalling words that you have, that have now been written on your heart, like Scripture says, that you've memorized, and you're recalling to test whatever is being spoken. Are you with me? No, no, no. Uh, the amazing thing about that moment is over and over and over in Scripture, we learn that what the Holy Spirit does is it guides us into all truth. And in John's day and age, the Holy Spirit was already indwelling in believers. And so the Holy Spirit was illuminating Scripture and words that they had already learned. So, let me give you an example. Uh, a Gnostic is teaching, and he's talking about the fact that Jesus did not come in the flesh as God. Well, John has preached that over and over and over in his gospel, and I'm sure it was a huge part of his teaching when he was there. And so instantly they're recalling, they're like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. And the Holy Spirit is illuminating that word, and they're recalling it, and they're like, whoa, no, not a Spirit of God. Right? Now the second process that an individual in John's day would have gone through is they would have had the access or the opportunity to do research, okay? Uh, so for instance, uh, someone's talking, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I'm, not, I'm confused by that. Could you say that again? And they even like write it down, and then they go, and they look through some of the scripture that they have access to. Maybe they would, would speak to a teacher, but they would go and be proactive in the testing of it. Now the third thing that they have the opportunity to do is to discern. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And so do the individuals that were believers in John's day. And so the third part of that process is plain and simple discernment. What's my sense? Now, let me talk about this in our day and age. So someone's talking. The first process that you have to test the spirits to know whether or not it is from God is you are recalling Scripture that you have memorized, that you have learned, that you have heard, and instantly as that individual is speaking, acting as a mouthpiece for God, the Holy Spirit is illuminating those words that you have taken in. And so as passages begin to cycle through your heart and your head, you're able to instantaneously test. We see a Jesus in the Scriptures, right? Good place to see Jesus, right? We see Jesus in the Scriptures, and one of the amazing things, and yes, he was God, but one of the amazing things about Christ is as people are talking and as he has conversations with individuals, being fully God and fully man, he is like instantaneously just discerning. Why does he battle Satan with Scripture? Because he knows it. Because the Scripture is so written on his heart that the instantaneous way to battle Satan was just to use the Word. 
The second thing that we all have access to is this. So someone says something about the sovereignty of God, which you're not quite sure how to test because you haven't memorized particular passages that would allow you to defend in that moment. Guess what? Here you go. And so you go back and you begin to flip and learn and study for days on end so that you can properly test that spirit to see whether or not it is from God. The third thing that you and I have, the same access that the people in John's day had, is we have the opportunity to discern. Now, the problem with that process. Christians in general are spiritually shallow. And in the first part of the process, as we're testing spirits and recalling Scripture, what we soon realize is there's little Scripture to recall. We haven't been feasting on the Word of God. We haven't been journeying through the Word enough to truly have a broad base of what the Scripture says. And so what do we do? We move on to process two. Okay, so we don't know a lot of Scripture. And again, granted, for you young Christians here, that will be a reality for a while. But you better be diving in, all right? So we move to the second process. We have the opportunity to study and to look through the Scriptures and to test what is being spoken. Most Christians are lazy. The thought of having to look through the Word of God for even an hour for an answer that someone was speaking, it doesn't even excite you, let alone... And so what do, what do most of us do? Most of us just skip to discernment. We just skip right to discernment. No Scripture recall. No Scripture study. We just discern. And what I will add is we discern flippantly. Because we're just in the moment, yeah, I don't, you know, that whole thing about propitiation being powerful, big word, sounds cool, but I don't think so. I'm just discerning right now in my spirit that hasn't been in the word that you're an idiot, right? That, that, that's what we do. We just skip to discernment. Do you guys see the problem? Let me tell you something. Your Holy Spirit discernment will never, ever, 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 ever go against scripture. That's why scripture begins it. Uh, so many Christians just begin with discernment. What's my sense, you know? Instead of what does the Scripture say? This is fail-proof. I don't know about you, but there are moments in my life where I struggle to discern. I'm like, I don't, this is fail-proof. Listen, I'm so burdened in this moment to ask each of us, what kind of gimmick do we need to finally create this hunger in our heart that just desires to know the Word? What John is teaching is, if you want to test the spirits, then you better know what a Spirit of God is. And the only way we know that is through this Word, my friends. Ultimately, he doesn't want his people that are reading this to be spiritually gullible. How many of you guys consider yourself gullible? Anybody? All right, let me, uh, no one, good. Um, let me ask this. How many of you, are, how many of you uh, have ever been sucked into an infomercial for some like handheld weed eater, right? That, that had some like inch blade and it was on at like three in the morning and you sat there eating your popcorn like, this is the most amazing thing. Like how many, have you ever, 
That happened to me a few weeks ago. That's why I was not three in the morning. But it was amazing, actually, this little hand thing. I don't know how to chop people's, you know. How, how many of you guys, let me ask this. How many of you guys bought uh, uh, supplies for Y2K? You know, any, anybody? Good, good. That, that, that was not good right there. All right. Um, like, are, are you guys just gullible people, right? Now, 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 what John doesn't want his readers to be is spiritually gullible. And sometimes those of you who would believe anything that anyone would say in general, in the physical, would then transfer that to what's happening in the spiritual. He doesn't want his people, just because it says Jesus in it, to instantly believe it. He doesn't want his people to be spiritually gullible. So any radio sermon that says Jesus, you're just like, oh, this is good. Good stuff, brother. You know? Yeah. You're driving in your car, no hands on the steering wheel. You're just like, this is good, you know? Right? Any book that in the first chapter just by chance happens to mention a scripture, you defend it. Well, there's scripture in there. You know, have you read it? And if you open it, it's like the most heretical book possible. And yes, they did mention a scripture in the glossary. I'm sorry. Right? He doesn't want his readers to be gullible. Some of you, I would imagine, struggle with spiritual gullibility, if you will, all right? You receive and desire anything that has the name Jesus on it. Most of you, though, have overcompensated and find yourself spiritually cynical. You see, gullibility, if you will, is not the only issue. The other issue is to overcompensate and become spiritually cynical. In other words, you build like eight-inch brick walls around yourself at any point that anyone mentions Jesus. Can we agree that both of these extremes are dangerous? Now, both of them, most often in your life, stem from baggage. You were burned at some point by being spiritually gullible and trusting that what that person was saying or what that experience was was from God. And so instead of finding balance and being spiritually discerning, you went to the extreme and became spiritually cynical. Are you here tonight and either spiritually gullible or spiritually cynical? What John desires his readers to be is spiritually discerning that is based upon the words of the Scripture. But church, to do that, you must know, regurgitate, feast on the Word of God. Look, let's just pause and pray right now that He, cre- that he creates that desire. Because there's no gimmick, there's no pass out, right, where we can all of a sudden sign up for some, you know, word journey. He's got to create the desire. So let's pray right now. Come on. God, I ask right now in this moment, in this particular text, that you would implore our hearts to better learn and grow in your word. I pray that you'll create that desire, that you'll create that hunger, that together we'll be able to journey through this in your awesome name and all God's people said, amen. Verse 2. Verse 2 says this. Verse 2 says this. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So we just talked about testing the spirits in the general sense. John gets a little bit specific here 
for this particular culture at this particular time. First thing I want you to notice. By this, what's the third word? What's the third word? You. Isn't that encouraging? He is again affirming this fact that you have access to discern and test the spirits. You. Not just your daddy, right? Not just your preacher. Not just your girlfriend who fears the Lord, Proverbs 31, so much. You, right? You have the opportunity to test the spirits. Now, I want to show you guys something. By this, you know the spirit of God. Culturally, in John's day, there would have been many answers for that question that are 100% counterfeit. I would imagine things like this. By this, you know the spirit of God. If the person speaking speaks with tremendous energy and confidence. By this you know the Spirit of God if they can communicate certain truths about Jesus. That's how culturally they would have answered it. We do the same thing. By this you know the Spirit of God if the person cries. Right? Oh, that person. Spirit-led right there. See those tears? Those are real, you know? All right? I was at a conference one time. This is horrible. I was at a conference one time, and I called out a fake crier from the podium, you know? I was like, I think that guy's fake crying. You know, like, that's not good. I don't even know why I shared that, but it was just, right? I won't tell you his name. I wasn't, I did, wasn't speaking. I was in the crowd, you know? By this, you know the Spirit of God if they have certain body gyrations, right? Have you ever done that? You've watched someone in worship, and you're like, that guy is filled with the Spirit. Did you see those moves, you know? Like, that can only be explained... By the Spirit of God, right? Or, or, or we say things like this. By this you may know the Spirit of God if the person speaks in tongues. Have you ever heard that one before culturally? By this you know that, that the Spirit of God, because of the, the zeal that just comes out of the individual, man, they have to be filled with the Spirit. The problem with all of those things and the criteria are many more is they are completely and very possibly counterfeit. Now, are those things real? Am I saying that if a person cries, they're definitely not filled with the Spirit? No. Is at times speaking in tongues an example, uh, as long as it follows the biblical principles of what speaking in tongues is, could that be an example of the move of the Spirit? Most certainly. Are certain worship body gyrations potentially the move of the Spirit? Yes, but not all the time. And so John gives us, by this, you know the Spirit of God. Look at this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Takes away all assumptions and says it right here. Now first, understand, he's writing to a culture that Gnosticism is preaching against this. Jesus couldn't have been God. He couldn't have come in the flesh because the flesh is all evil. And so John writes this particular verse particularly for the culture. Do you guys understand? This isn't the only litmus test, okay? If you're reading a book and it's barely biblically sound, but at some point doesn't mention the word flesh in it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not from God. This isn't the only litmus test, but for John's day and age, it was. For us to better understand that, let's break down the Greek. Every spirit that confesses homo legeo, 
confesses. That word, publicly claiming something, and one of the nuances of that Greek word is to worship or to praise. You see, I think, some, I think some of us at this point could be like, oh yeah, so any spirit that just says Jesus. No, 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 that's not what he's saying here. Any spirit that worships Jesus, the connection of inner faith, what's happening inwardly, and what's happening outwardly, that connection, that confession. I mean, even Jesus said, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we testify in your name? So clearly it doesn't just mean speaking the name of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, even the demons... Like, know who I am. And we confess, and we see that in the scriptures, where they call him by name. So clearly it doesn't just mean that. It means a confession, biblically, of who Christ is. Speaking of which, do you guys see the word there, Jesus Christ? Now, in your own personal study, the reality is many of you would pause at that moment. But it's a necessary pause. Only three times in the whole First John epistle are those two words seen together. Why are they seen together? Because Jesus can just be a historical figure. The historical figure, Jesus, came in the flesh. But it's a whole different statement when you say Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. The historical figure in the flesh and the Christ the Messiah, all in one. That is a necessary piece in John's day and age for those individuals to understand. Now, I want you to see this. The, the phrasing there, has come. It's a Greek word, ex erkomai. Everyone say that with me. Ex erkomai. Yes, right? Firstborn child. There it is. Ex erkomai. Now, ex erkomai, and this is going to become huge in verse 3. Ex erkomai implies the incarnation. Jesus leaving heaven, coming in the... Yeah, I said leaving heaven, because he always was. Like God didn't want to say, you know, Mary, and there Jesus... No. Always was. Came down and was incarnated. Ex erkomai, has come in the flesh, is from God. Why is this teaching so necessary in John's day and age? If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, fully God and fully man, then there is no real humiliation like Philippians chapter 2 talks about. If he doesn't come in the flesh and have the possibility to be tempted, then he really didn't fulfill what Scripture says. He would be tempted in every way. Philippians 2 makes it clear. He humbled himself. If there's no incarnation, then there's no real humiliation. And the bigger part, is if Jesus was just some spirit, and this is part of what the Gnostics believe, on the cross he was just some spirit, not really experiencing pain, just up there putting on a phenomenal show, Jesus the actor. If that's the case, then there was no real propitiation, there was no real wrath of God poured out, there was no real suffering. When scripture over and over and over talks about Christ, being the sacrificial lamb, not just some mannequin on a cross. Now, some people at this point would say, well, Mark, where's the faith in all this? Like, if we're supposed to test the spirits, and in John's day, they were, you know, supposed to see if a spirit would, like, where's the faith? Have you heard this before? I have, many times. Um, a friend of mine 
we were part of a, a great uh, campus movement. Noah was a part of it. And uh, God just did some amazing things. And there was this big movement. And then there was this guy uh, who was the leader of a, for lack of a better term, a separatist movement on the campus, right? And, uh, and him and I hung out often. Okay, I was the leader of, uh, of some of this other stuff, and he was the leader. And we had very different theological doctrinal perspectives. And one night he came into me, came into my dorm, we were talking, and I was sharing with him some of the visions that God had laid on my heart for where we needed to go as a, as a community on the college campus. And, and this is a week earlier, by the way, he had asked me if he could give me the Holy Spirit so I could speak in tongues. So we were already at a little bit of a disadvantage, right? But at this particular moment, as I'm speaking this vision, he says, Mark, you know, just in my, I'm just, like, I think, which, I think this is what God is telling us to do, right? And he spouted off this thing that, to be honest, was somewhat heretical. So in that moment, what, am I just supposed to have faith and receive everything that's spouted out? What you'll find is what people in John's day found. As you test the spirits, and in this case, seeing if they would confess that Christ had come in the flesh, your faith doesn't deteriorate. Your faith enhances because it points you back to the originator of your faith, the creator of your faith. You get an awe-inspiring glimpse at who's giving you faith. Because as you test, and as the Word comes alive to you, you're reminded again about the glory of God. And in that moment, you're not shrinking because you're not faithful. You're confident in the God you serve. I've heard so many people in my day, well, Mark, that testing, that cynical, you know, that's just, that's, that's lacking faith. Really? If I'm digging through the Scriptures, and the Spirit's speaking and I'm moving based upon that? Is that lacking faith? No, no, no. It's enhancing my picture of the originator of my faith, you see. So my friends, what is it in our day and age, in our culture, any spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God? What is it for us? Any spirit that says that Jesus is the only way is from God? Good example, right? We live in a very new ageistic Sorry about that one. World, right? Jesus isn't the only way. Very, very tolerant. What are some other things in our culture, right? Any spirit that confesses that by the grace of Christ, that it's completely sufficient, that there's nothing that I can do to earn it, right? I was talking with a brother, and we'll move on to verse 3 after this, that I was talking with a brother the other day, and we come from very different backgrounds. Very different backgrounds. And, and then the, the brother went up and he was, he was preaching at a funeral actually. And as he spoke, like, and I was like, I was interested in what he was going to say. The first words out of his mouth were this. It is by nothing that I have done that I have earned anything. It's all about what Christ has done in me. In that moment, I'm like, right on my brother. You know what I'm saying? Like, there are powerful moments when as you test spirits that are acting as mouthpieces for God, you're affirmed in that. What a beautiful moment. Verse 3. And every spirit, this is the negative verse of uh, verse 2. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. I have a big question from this verse. Are you guys, can we, can we go through this? Not that you have a choice. Um, if a spirit is not from God, then where does it come from? Let's, let's keep going, okay? Well, this, this, you'd be, Captain Obvious would be like, well, it comes from the Antichrist. Okay, where does the spirit of the Antichrist come from? The deeper part of my question is this. Christians are guided by the Holy Spirit. How about non-Christians? Scripture makes it clear that the spiritual realm is all around us. The fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood, Scripture says, but against the powers, rulers, authorities of the darkness. So if a person does not believe in Jesus, they don't have the seal of the Spirit within them, then what are they guided by? Well, the very premise of the Antichrist, lowercase, is what? It's anti-Jesus. It's anti-gospel. This isn't talking about the Revelation, capital A, Antichrist. It's talking about something that goes against the gospel. Now, let me show you this. A non-Christian, born with a sin nature. Stay with me. Born with a sin nature. John has taught us that that individual is a child of Satan. Harsh words, but why? They're a son of the devil because they do what the devil does. And what did John say the devil does? He has been sinning from the beginning. Satan feels no remorse. He never repents. He never comes to God. He's never humbled. He is always sinning. That's what he does. If you are not a believer, having no protection of the Spirit, God not implanting faith in you, then guess what? You are living under the constant influence of your sin nature. You are, like we preached a few weeks ago, habitually sinning. It is always happening. That's why for some of you that have strong relationships with people who don't believe, you're surprised at times when they act like they don't know Jesus. They act like it because they don't. The only way that anyone can truly even experience love is through the gospel of Christ. So why should we be surprised? Okay, that's all fine and good. We understand that, Mark. They're controlled by the sin nature. But what does that have to do with the spiritual realm? Interesting question, right? Does that mean that every non-Christian is possessed by a demon? Is there any biblical evidence for that, friends? No. But what we can say is if they are following as a son of Satan, the things that Satan has done from the beginning, then that means because they're not protected by the Holy Spirit, listen, they are always susceptible to the demonic spiritual influence. No protection, always susceptible. Are some non-Christians possessed by demons? Yes. Right? But does every non-Christian have the possibility to be susceptible to the influence of a demonic spirit? Yes. And what John says is that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Is the weight of this problem sinking into you yet? Because for me, what I do from this moment is I sit back and I begin to evaluate my relationships. And I begin to understand that God has called me 
into a dark world influenced by demonic spirits to be a light among them. And at that moment, I realized, if I don't know this, if I am not prepared with this, out there, I will be a mess. I will be a wreck. My foundation is in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit illuminating them. One thing you learn about the Spirit, my friends, is that the Spirit's role is to illuminate the Word of God that we may glorify Christ. Christ's role, one of his main roles, was to glorify the Father. That's what Scripture says. The Spirit illuminates the Word. We get empowered to go into a world that is influenced by demonic spirits and share the love of Christ. Cannot wait to sit on you for a moment. I want to show you something else. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard and which you heard was coming. Hold on a second. Verse 2. We looked at a was coming. And what word did I tell you it was? Remember? Ex. Ex erico. Remember? Ex ericomai. This word is ericomai. Now the interesting thing about this. Look at this. The interesting thing about the phrasing here is it works with verse 2. It's as if to say, because Christ came in the flesh, it has revealed more darkness. Let me put it to you this way. More light reveals more darkness. Many of you guys will remember back in Harden, the Harden gym when we studied, studied demonology. Some of you guys remember that night? Perfect. No one is very influential. Good. Okay. Now, um, that night... One of the things we looked at, and if you're not there, you're like, demonology, this sounds interesting. It was. One of the things we saw was that in the Old Testament, few mentions about demonic activity. In fact, if I remember correctly, nine. Once the gospel comes, once Christ comes in the flesh, it is a blow-up of activity. We're constantly seeing Satan. We're constantly seeing his influence. We're constantly seeing possession. We're constantly seeing interactions between Christ and Satan. Why? More light reveals more darkness. And so what John is saying is be protected because you know that Christ came in the flesh and you know that that will reveal more darkness just as it has with Gnosticism. John's big focus is that in these moments that the church would unify. That the church would come together and rage war against any spirit that would not confess Christ for the purpose of glorifying Christ. That the church would lock arms in mission. That the church would be united in the person of Jesus. That the church would see the scriptures for what it truly is, the word of God, and that they would live by it. I wonder if that's what we will do with this word tonight. One of the ways that I feel like as a church we need to unify right now is I feel like we're dropping the ball when it comes to our prayer life as a church. 
Yeah, we've had momentary blips of journeying through prayer. If there's one thing right now that we believe this church needs to do together, it's pray. It's pray that we will be unified. It's praying for Piney Ridge. It's praying for August Gate. It's praying that God would use this church to truly test the spirits, that we would be empowered by the Spirit to see that illuminated. And so, friends, for the next 38 days, we are going to journey together, praying the same thing on every day of the month from now until the end of July. And you're going to have an opportunity to come and pick up one of these calendars tonight. And what I'm asking is tonight, will you join this opportunity? You see, in John's day, the apostles came in, the gospel began to spread, movement was happening, and it became easy to see darkness as the enemy was trying to thwart plans. Do you guys understand that if there's anything the enemy could do to this church right now, is he would tear it apart? Do you guys understand that? Does the weight of that hit you? That he would get in between us by using some of this falsity to distract us. No, it's time, church, that we unite in prayer. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. Jeremy and the crew could come up and I want you guys to dim the lights back there. I want to read the prayer for today. June 24th. It says this, Matthias's lot, that we would experience complete unity in this exciting time of transition. Not just some frivolous words, but the prayer that we would experience tremendous unity in this exciting time of planting two churches. That in fact, when we look back, what we would say about this time is this time was more unifying than any time we experienced. In fact, we learned about the unification of the church through this season. So wherever you're at, wherever you're standing, I want to invite you to pray. Maybe for some of you out loud, maybe for some of you silently, maybe for some of you on your face. Tonight we start this journey. Tonight we cry out that God would provide a spirit of unity amongst us as we test any spirit that would not confess Jesus. So friends, let's pray now that we would experience that unity. Come on, let's cry out.